0: This morning I brought with me this old flashlight. Seems like an ordinary flashlight, and it is. But I've had this flashlight for like over 16 years. I've had it, uh, I I know that because I bought it right after Hurricane Katrina destroyed our house, and my old flashlight, the one thing that'll kill these is salt water, uh, because I had one just like it, and it killed it. But I've had this flashlight for 16 years. And the reason I still have it, I've had other flashlights, but this flashlight's dependable. I know that if I can't find another flashlight, I can go to this one, and I can turn it on, and it's always going to work. And I'm not going to shine it in anybody's eyes because it's pretty bright, but it always works. I know. I can go to this flashlight if I need one. Now, I've dropped this flashlight off of very high ladders working on the house. I mean, it's, it's been banged around. You can see there's scuff marks all over it. I mean, I have abused this flashlight, yet it still works every single time. It's dependable. In our lives, we have a tendency to gravitate towards things that are dependable, right? I mean, we want to know that we can trust people. We want to know that we can trust things. We want cars that are reliable. We want houses that we don't have to spend too much time fixing, which seems to always be the case. There's a to do list. But we want appliances that are dependable, everything. We look for things that we can count on. and and that's true across the board. You know, there's a a story. Socrates was a controversial figure. Uh, He uh, was a classical Greek Athenian philosopher. He's credited as one of the founders of Western philosophy, and he was tried, and he was sentenced to death in 399 BC. The reason is because he, uh, he the reason he was controversial, not particularly liked, is that he challenged anyone's thinking through this endless circular Socratic dialogues that he had, and he he publicly questioned the gods that the Athenians worshipped. So basically, he was tried and sentenced to death uh, for uh, religious freedom of speech. Okay, but but what's interesting is that when he was in prison waiting for his execution, some of his followers visited him. And, the, the, of course, he's facing death. The topic turned quickly to life after death. Would Socrates go on after this life? And they talked about it all day, over and over. Different scenarios, different, uh, attempting to answer the question, is there life after death? Is there anything beyond the grave? And here is the conclusion that they came to. The conclusion they came to was no one can really know. No one can know for sure that there's life after death. That was their conclusion. So the best a person can do is just hope for the best, essentially. You know, that you live life, you do the best you can, and you hope that there's something beyond the grave. They, they were looking for some word, they said, to give them assurance, to give them hope, something to depend on as far as life after death, and they could not come up with a single word of hope. Well, I'm here today to tell you that God gives us a word for that, and that word is resurrection. Jesus Christ died. He was crucified. He was buried, but then on the third day, he arose, and that is something that we can depend on. That is something that gives us hope, and Paul In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he expounds on this word, resurrection. According to verse 12, some in Corinth doubted the resurrection of the dead to life. So, in this chapter, Paul gives us some facts about Christ's resurrection. And we're going to look at those this morning. The first is this. The resurrection is certain. You don't... Have to doubt? It's not some pie in the sky. Gee, I hope it's true belief. It is a fact. It is certain, and there's plenty of evidence to back that up. I mean, God says it, and we should believe it in His Word. But outside of that, there's there's evidence to support. So let's look at that. What are the proofs of the resurrection? Well, Paul gives us three solid proofs in these first few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking first at the first few verses starting in chapter 1. Proofs of the resurrection. First, he gives us the testimony of Scripture. Look at verses 3 and 4 of this, this passage. The first proof, the testimony of Scripture. For I passed on to you... As most important what I also receive that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. So the resurrection of Jesus should not have been a surprise to his followers. I mean he talked about it fairly often. He himself talked about his resurrection. So, his disciples should not have been surprised by that. But before Jesus talked about it, we see it written about in the Old Testament. It was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He referred to these prophecies on the road to Emmaus. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So what's the big deal about this kind of evidence? Prophecy, specifically. Well, the big deal is fulfilled prophecy is the greatest and highest of all the evidence that Christ is truly the Son of God and was raised from the dead. It is the Word of God, his revelation to us of himself, God told us long before Jesus was ever born, what was going to happen about his life, his death, his resurrection. We have the scriptures to tell us that and and it is it should be valued it should be uh, proof evidence we should consider it what it is. It is evidence it's the evidence cited again and again when you see the uh, apostles. First messages in the book of Acts, they cite this evidence again and again as proof that Jesus was who he said, is who he said he is, and is alive. They kept quoting fulfilled prophecy to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. If you look at Psalm chapter 22, Isaiah 53, there are other scriptures that speak specifically about the death and resurrection of Jesus, how that was going to happen, and it it happened exactly as God said in his word. So we have the fulfilled prophecy. It's the evidence that led to the conversion of, of the educated Greek rhetorician Justin Martyr. He said to declare that a thing shall come to pass long before it is in being. And then to bring it to pass is nothing but the work of God. It's the evidence that convinced Pascal, one of the greatest scientific minds of all time. He wrote, The greatest of the proofs of Jesus are the prophecies, the fulfilled prophecies. And when you look at the evidence, the prophecies about Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, when you see the fulfilled prophecies, that it is it's hard to argue with that kind of evidence. It's hard to argue with that type of proof, but that's not all we have. Paul also mentions the testimony of eyewitnesses. Let's look again, let's look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother. Then to the apostles. Last of all... As to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul is saying he appeared to me. Now, I, haven't, I have not met that many famous people, and I, I know I've probably told this before, but, it, you know, it's my story, and I can tell it if I want, right? <laughs> But I've met, I've met one famous person, maybe more, but one particular that I remember. I, in seminary, I, I went to the extension in Birmingham the first couple years for New Orleans Seminary, and my friends and I would go out to lunch every day, and we would frequent McAllister's. There was a McAllister's nearby, and we were in McAllister's one day. And I had this friend uh, that played in the NFL briefly, and he was called to ministry, and he was a big football guy, I mean, literally big, but he was, I mean, he was really big in football, and we're sitting, but he was also a prankster. You, I mean, you never knew what he was going to do, and, and you never knew if he was telling the truth or not, not that he was a liar, he was just always pulling pranks on people, right? So we're sitting there, and he says, hey guys, you're not going to believe this, but Bart Starr just walked through the door. And we're like, yeah, right, whatever, it's some kind of joke, right? But sure enough, we turn around, there's Bart Starr. Walked into the McAllisters in Birmingham, and then it became, okay, I dare you to go introduce yourself, you know, and we're all like, no, I'm not going to, so together as a group, we, we worked up the courage, and we walked over and introduced ourselves to Bart Starr. He was incredibly gracious, shook our hands, all this kind of stuff, so that, that's my one, one memory of meeting someone, a celebrity that was famous, and I have nothing but good things to say about Uh, that experience. But here's what I know. I know that Bart Starr existed. You know why? I met him. Person to person, I met him. There's no doubt in my mind that Bart Starr existed. Now, even if you didn't meet him, and you know me, and hopefully you trust me, right, and I tell you that Bart Starr exists, I'm an eyewitness, right? It's hard to argue with that. Now, we have that with Jesus, not only with his life, but the number of people who saw him after his death, alive, walking around, talking, even eating, is amazing when you look at it. And Paul digs into that for us. He gives us a list of people who saw Jesus Christ alive. That word appeared refers to them seeing with their eyes. This is important. It refers to them seeing, not hallucinating, but seeing with their eyes. Reality. They really and truly saw Jesus. And this is strong evidence. Think about it. How do you prove anything in a court of law? It is, it is determined by the credibility uh, of the witness. The number of witnesses, the agreement of the witnesses... And the reliability of the witnesses. So let's do a quick investigation ourselves. Let's not ju- don't just take my word for it. Let's do a quick investigation here. Let's look. Verses 5 and 6. First in verse 5, the resurrected Christ was seen by Peter and the rest of the 12, verse 5 tells us. So we've got the disciples who had spent a lot of time with him, by the way. Who would know if it was him or not. They saw him. So those closest to him. But you could say maybe it was a plot, maybe it was, you know, a cover-up, maybe it was some sort of conspiracy, but we go beyond that. The resurrected Christ was seen by not just the disciples, but 500 witnesses. Now, think about this for a moment, okay? We're reading this, these people are long gone, right? These folks have been long since dead. But when Paul wrote this, many, most of these people were still alive. And they could have rebutted this claim. These people he's writing to in Corinth could have gone, to, probably knew some of these people, I don't know, could have gone to these people and said, hey, is this for real? And no one refuted that claim. 500 people saw him. Now, if I was to tell you I saw Bart Starr, you may or may not believe me, depending on how well you know me. If me and let's say there were, I don't know how many guys, but let's just say 10 guys were with me that day. If all 10 of us said, hey, we saw Bart Starr, then you're going to think, okay, that might be for real. I I believe that, right? But if myself and 499 other people said, we saw Bart Starr at McAllister's, you're probably going to believe that, right? If we all agree, if no one's saying, no, that wasn't him, if we're all agreeing, 500 people. If it's just a few folks, you may not believe that. If it's just 10 folks, you're probably, you might believe that. But 500 people all in agreement, no one disputed that claim, you're going to believe that. That's credibility. That's evidence. And that's what we have with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we go further. The resurrected Christ was also seen by James. Verse 7 tells us. Now, why is that important? James is Jesus' half-brother. And if you look, you see James would be considered a hostile witness at this point, okay? Because when you look at John, Mark chapter 6 and John chapter 7, James and his brother, they, they basically ridicule Jesus, call him crazy. They don't believe at that point that he is the Messiah. I mean, you know, don't be too hard on them. I have a sister I don't have a brother, but if she told me she was God, I would be kind of suspicious of that too, right? I mean, so you know, you can kind of put yourself in their shoes. But here's the deal: we're going through the Book of James, right, together as a church. You walk through James. If there's not a greater testimony for a transformed life than that book, by that that inspired by the Holy Spirit, the half brother of Jesus, his life was radically transformed. What made the difference? He saw Jesus alive after His death he saw the resurrected Christ and he believed and most of his brothers did too if not all of them all those who were doubt, who doubted i mean these again these guys grew up with him and they james believes and then we go further not just james but paul himself saw jesus on the road to damascus verse 8 he references that now paul would certainly be classified as a hostile witness I mean, he, he was on the road to persecute Christians. That's what he was best at. His goal in life, his mission in life, was to wipe out Christianity. And one day on the road to Damascus, everything changed. He saw Jesus face to face. He saw the resurrected Christ, and his life changed forever. His life would never be the same. And that's why he talks about the testimony of a changed life, which is another proof of the resurrection. Um, you know, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, our sin debt is wiped out. Our, our slate is, is clean. And when you see a guy like Paul, what he did before he met Jesus, I mean, as a Christian, you, uh, anybody would have said, hey, he, he's, he's not the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he did a lot of bad stuff. And it is the message here. Just kind of a little side note. One of the lessons we learned from guys like Paul is that no one is too far gone for God to save. No, it doesn't matter what you've done and where you've been. What matters is what are you going to do with the invitation that Jesus gives you today, to, to accept Him. Because Paul met Him face to face, and he accepted, and his life was never the same. And we see. He wrote most of the New Testament. We see. He took that same vigor, that same tenacity he used to persecute the church, and he served God faithfully. He, 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 had, he received a brand new life. Look at verses 8 through 10. last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's honest about his past, but here's the difference. But the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We could all say that, right? And his grace toward me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about how his life now is different afterwards. Yet not I, it's not in my strength, it's not my doing, but the grace of God that was in me. This, in my opinion, is Paul's strongest argument. Now, I love the evidence. I love the fulfilled prophecy. Don't get me wrong. But you can't really argue with someone's personal testimony. Your testimony is the most powerful tool you have in witnessing. How God has changed your life. And Paul is sharing that with us. He tells about his past life. I persecuted the church of God. I did some really bad stuff, evil stuff. But then he tells what made the difference in his life. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And then he tells about his changed life. Now I work harder than anybody. I'm going to show my gratitude. I'm not earning my salvation. I'm already saved. But I, you better believe as long as there's breath in my body, I'm going to serve God faithfully and with tenacity. In essence, Paul is saying, you know what I used to be and you know what I am now. You tell me what made the difference. I'll tell you, God's grace is what made the difference. You know, G. Campbell Morgan once said that some people say that the true account of what happened to Saul of Tarsus, what was his name before God changed his life, Saul of Tarsus, was that he had an epileptic seizure in a thunderstorm. That was some people's explanation. Now, I'm not being insensitive to medical issues, but I'm quoting G. Campbell Morgan here, okay, so don't get offended. Morgan said this, he said, if that's true, men should always pray for a multiplication of thunderstorms and an epidemic of epilepsy because that man's life was changed radically by what happened to him. It wasn't a thunderstorm. It wasn't an epileptic seizure. He saw Jesus Christ face to face and he's telling us about it here. So that's what changed my life, he's saying. We can take comfort in that. These are convincing evidences. We are, our beliefs are based on, on actual evidence. Yes, faith has an element that we believe in what we can't see, and we, we trust in God when we don't know the outcome, but it is not ridiculous to believe in the resurrection. There's proof. There's evidence, plenty of evidence. We should believe it, and we should act on it by following Christ. Now, let's look at the next fact Paul gives us. We can also take comfort in the fact that the resurrection was controlled. You know, life can be chaotic and messy. Amen? Amen. It can be a mess. It can be hard. It can be difficult. It can be painful. But there, here's what gives me assurance, even when the whole world seems to be falling apart, and it kind of seems like that right now. Here's what gives me assurance. There has never been a point in history where God was not in control, ever, ever. And what's happening now in our world, God is not asleep at the wheel. He's not wringing his hands, worried about what he's going to do. He is on his throne, and he's in complete control. I have confidence in that. And that's why, regardless of inflation rates, regardless of economic stress, pandemics, whatever comes in life, it may be painful, it may be difficult, And I'm not denying that, and I know some of you here today are hurting incredibly, and I acknowledge that. I'm not minimizing your pain, your hurt. But one thing I can assure you, I can't explain why our world is the way it is, I can't explain why things are happening collectively to us or to you personally, but here's what I can say, I'm confident 100% that God is in control, and if he's in control, he has a plan, You may not know what that plan is in this life in terms of your hurt and your pain, but you will in eternity if you're his child. Even if you did know why he was doing what he was doing, it may not take the difficulty away or the hurt away, but God's in control. Luke 23, 46, he was in control during the crucifixion. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Now last night, it's kind of become a little bit of an Easter tradition for us. We watched... Part of the Jesus uh, Sight and Sound Theater. Has anybody ever been there? I think there's one in Branson. Um, it's amazing production. It's basically a, a really um, tech-heavy uh, Easter pageant. And other, they do other plays. They have one on David, but this is the Easter one. They offered it free during the pandemic uh, two years ago, and and we watched it. Now we watch it every Easter, and it's really incredible. Uh, but when I was, you know, growing up, Easter pageants were a huge thing, right? And I'm sure some of you uh, participated in one. I, I participated in several. They usually made me like a soldier or someone demon-possessed. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I, I mean, I was, one year I was the demon-possessed guy. My job was to ride around on stage while they played some track of an evil voice. They wouldn't even let me speak. And then I think that same year I was a soldier who nailed Jesus to the cross. I don't know what they were saying, but hey... It was kind of fun, not nailing Jesus, I mean, you know, playing in the play. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the year I was a soldier, we, had, we did The Promise one year, and it was a big production, a huge production. And we had the guy who actually played Jesus in the play, wherever it was, he came to our church and played Jesus. And he was, he was a, a, a sure enough, real actor, okay, and he, played, he had done this for years. And, and our job was to, you know, rough him up a little bit. That part was kind of fun, you know. Yeah. I'm not a big guy, but it was fun. And, and so we would take him in, and we would basically, we, we would manhandle him. But when we got to the cross, while we were rehearsing, he said something. I thought this was incredible. He said, all right, guys, you can do whatever you want. Try not to hurt me too bad. But when we get to the cross, I'm laying down myself. You're not going to force me on the cross. Small detail. Small detail but so very profound because he said no one forced Jesus on the cross. He laid his life down voluntarily and I want to communicate that. As subtle as it is, I want to communicate that to the people watching. I never forgot that and you better believe I didn't force him down. He laid down. And and that's what Jesus did for us. He was in control during the crucifixion. He gave his life. He was also in control during the resurrection. God was in control every minute of all three of those days. You know, sometimes we forget about Saturday. Think about Saturday for a moment. Melody Jose, our church secretary sent me something yesterday, and I thought it was very appropriate. I'm just going to read it for you. It's from Max Lucado. Jesus is silent. On Saturday, has ever been silent in your life? He hasn't mind at times. The women have anointed his body and placed it in Joseph's tomb. The cadaver of Christ is as mute as the stone which guards it. He spoke much on Friday. He will liberate the slaves of death on Sunday. But on Saturday, Jesus is silent. So is God. He made himself heard on Friday. He tore the curtains of the temple, opened the graves of the dead, rocked the earth, blocked the sun of the sky, and sacrificed the son of heaven. Earth heard much of God on Friday, nothing on Saturday. Jesus is silent. God is silent. Saturday is silent. Easter weekend, discussions tend to skip Saturday. Friday and Sunday get the press. The crucifixion and the resurrection command our thoughts, but don't ignore Saturday. You have them too. Silent Saturdays, the day between the struggle and the solution, the question and the answer, the offered prayer and the answer thereof. Saturday silent torments us. Is God angry? Did I disappoint him? God knows Jesus is in the tomb. Why doesn't he do something? Or in your case, God knows your career's in the tank, your finances are in the pit, your marriage is a mess. Why doesn't he act? What are you supposed to do until he does? You do what Jesus did. You lie still. Stay silent. Trust God. Jesus died with this conviction. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Jesus knew God would not leave him alone in the grave. You need to know God will not leave you alone in your struggles. His silence is not his absence. Inactivity is never apathy when it comes to God. Saturdays have their purpose. They let us feel the full force of God's strength. Had God raised Jesus 15 minutes after the death of his son, would we have appreciated the act? Were he to solve your problems the second they appear, would you appreciate his strength? For his reasons, God inserts a Saturday between Fridays and Sundays. If today is one for you, be patient. As one who endured the silent Saturday wrote, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. God's in control even on Saturdays. And we all have them. He was in control that entire weekend. It wasn't a minute that wasn't planned meticulously by God the Father. John 20, verse 7, inside the tomb, here's what Peter saw. How do we know he was in control even in the resurrection? The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. You might expect to see everything in a pile on the floor, but no, Jesus folded it neatly and laid it there. It wasn't a hurry, it wasn't a panic, it was complete control. Even the resurrection, he was in complete control the entire time. There's never been a time that God was not in complete control. This includes the resurrection. He also, or also we read from Paul, the resurrection is crucial. It's crucial. It's crucial to our faith. Why is that? Well, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is pointless. What I'm doing right now, I might as well just be giving a clever speech. It's pointless. Verse 14, look at that. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. It's true. What are we preaching about? Preaching about a dead man, if the resurrection is not a fact. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is fruitless. It amounts to nothing. It produces nothing. Look at verse 14 again. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I love how the New Living Translation says this. It says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. There's no forgiveness of sin without the resurrection. Nothing comes of it. No forgiveness, no eternal life, no spiritual growth, no spiritual fruit, no strength in life. Our faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our witness is worthless. Look at verses 15 and 16. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, uh Wednesday night, we had a Passover Seder meal. Our student pastor, Brother Caleb, did an excellent job with that. I've been a part of those a couple of times. And, and one time in particular, a guy named Murray from Jews for Jesus came to the church I was pastoring at the time, and we did a Passover Seder meal. And Mandy and I had the privilege of taking him out after dinner. Now, he was a, a Jewish believer, obviously, but his parents were not. They were not believers. And I asked him, you know, he'd just gone through the Passover Seder, and, 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 and it so clearly points to Jesus. It's such an amazing prophecy in and of itself. And I asked him, I said, you know, your dad, your mom and dad know what you do. They've, you've obviously shared the story with them. Why, why don't they believe? What do they make of the evidence that exists? And he said, my dad just says, you're selling people a bill of goods. It's just a scam. And you know what? If Jesus isn't alive, then we're just selling people a bill of goods. It's just a huge scam. That's how important the resurrection is. Our witness is worthless if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our future is pitiful. Our future Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, in other words, if we don't have hope of eternal life because he's not alive, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then we should be pitied more than anyone. And he's absolutely right, by the way. Our future. If this is all there is, I love my life. Don't get me wrong. I have a wonderful wife. Loves me, supports me. And I know sometimes that's not easy. I have great kids, even though they drive me crazy when they don't clean up after themselves. Leave noodles in the sink after they make a late night snack. But we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> I have great kids. I do. I really do. I love, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I love my kids. I love my life. I love being a pastor. I mean, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. I love what I'm doing right now. Y'all know that because of how long I do it every week. <laughs> That's okay. It's Easter. I really do love my life, but listen, if this is all there is, if there's nothing after this life, if if Socrates and his followers are right, then we should be pitied. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our future is pitiful. Without the resurrection, our baptism is meaningless. Paul refers to that. Now, this is a hard verse. I'm not going to lie. We're not going to go too far because that would take a long time. I'll make the main point. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Now listen, verse 29 is one of the most challenged and difficult verses in all of scripture. There's like some like 50 something interpretations of this verse. You know, some people say he's talking about baptism by proxy that there's people that are being baptized for folks that are already dead. And here's the problem with that, you know, when you, we look at this, I mean, this whole, first you've got to just understand that Paul's talking about the resurrection here. He's talking about proving the resurrection, assuring these people of the resurrection. So that's the context this is this is in. So if we look at this, the problem with this being a reference to baptism by proxy, even if he's referring to people who are doing the wrong thing, is that 1 Corinthians consists of Paul's rebukes against unbiblical practices. So I have a hard time, he does it in other places. I have a hard time believing that Paul would reference this and not rebuke it. Okay, so I don't think that's what it is. Some people say that it refers to being baptized because of someone else. In other words, somebody who died, their witness, their example, it, it led me to trust Christ. That I. I made a decision to follow Christ after seeing this person die, maybe a martyr's death or just their life's witness. And that could be the case, you know, because baptism is evidence. It is, it is a profession of faith. So maybe that's what he's saying. He could simply be just referring to the fact that baptism symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. Let's look quickly at what Paul says about baptism in Romans 6, verses 1 through 5. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 6, 4, Colossians 2, 2 show us how baptism pictures being buried with Christ. We are buried with Christ so that we can be raised to life in him. It's a picture of what takes place through salvation and what we have to look forward to. Resurrection. Baptism reminds us that the dead will be raised. Now the Corinthians had a good understanding of the doctrine of baptism. So Paul knows this. And if you take this understanding, then when Paul speaks of those who are baptized for the dead, it seems likely he's referring to believers when they are baptized. Believers' baptism is for the dead. Or concerning the dead who will rise. That gives its meaning. Paul may have just been saying if the dead do not rise at all, then baptism is pointless. But to be honest with you, I can't tell you for sure exactly what he means here. It's a difficult verse. Guys who are a lot smarter than me and been studying this a lot longer than I can't tell you exactly. But here's what I know. Here's the bottom line. I can tell you for sure. If there's no resurrection, then baptism's meaningless. I mean, baptism is saying that we've been... We died to that old life and we've received a brand new life. Only a living Savior can do that. And so if we don't have that, if he's not alive, then our baptism is meaningless. And without the resurrection, our sacrifices are useless. Look at verse 30 through 32 of 1 Corinthians 15. Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus As a mere man, what good did that do me? Paul's talking about the dangers, the hardships, the persecution that he faces, the sacrifices that he's made for the cause of Christ. He talks about fighting wild animals and he said, I face death every day. He's not exaggerating here. That was the reality of his life, living it for Jesus Christ. This is a strong expression of the danger of death that Paul faced every day, living out The mission that God had given him. Paul's argument was this. Hardships, dangers, and sacrifices are meaningless if there's no resurrection. He's saying, why would I do? Why am I doing everything that I'm doing? Why am I risking my life if Jesus is not alive? Christ still calls on us to sacrifice. Being a Christian was risky then. It's not as risky for us. It's moving in that direction. But God still calls on us to sacrifice for him. Missionaries leave home. Christians in countries like India, Sudan, China are killed or imprisoned for their faith. Businessmen suffer when they stand for what's right. Ridiculed for believing. All, All of us have faced some sort of ridicule, even minor, for believing in Jesus. Oh, you're intolerant. You don't love. God loves those people just the way they are. And you're telling them they're sinners. We all are going to face some form of this and it probably will get worse. Jesus calls on us to sacrifice. It's without apology that we ask people to sacrifice for Jesus, why? Because we know Jesus is alive. Without that, then what why the sacrifice? That's what Paul's saying. And without the resurrection, our morals are groundless. 1 Corinthians 15, 32 through 33. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. What's Paul's argument? Well, not only are baptism and sacrifices meaningless, but so is moral restraint. Hey, do whatever you want. Why not enjoy life? Some people have always lived without restraint. As a matter of fact, in this time, the, philosophies, the philosophy of the Epicureans was, let us eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we'll die. If Jesus isn't alive, then li- that we should live that way. We should get the most enjoyment out of life there is because if there's nothing beyond the grave, why not? But the man who lives without restraint is a fool. Jesus told the story of this type of man in Luke chapter 12. We need to watch our company if we want to live the right kind of life for Jesus Christ. Paul warns that wrong companions corrupts a person's morality. But the call for moral restraint is meaningless if there's no resurrection. So what do we make? Well, with all the evidence, and because of the resurrection, we do have hope. We have assurance. We have a future. We have a call on our lives to live separate, to live different, to live on mission for God, to give up our lives, to submit to him, to sacrifice for him, to suffer for him if necessary. But it's all worth it because he is alive. You know, I've, I've as a pastor, stood by bedsides, watched people take their last breath, Attempted to comfort families. I've, I've seen tragedy. Spent all night at the hospital one night with a family because the, the dad had a, an accident in our church parking lot on a four-wheeler. Massive head injury, passed away. You know, what do you tell families? I mean, I learned a long time ago there's no words. You know, I don't try to feel dead air. I just try to be there. I pray for them. But one thing I can tell anybody with assurance who goes through tragedy is that this life isn't all there is. For believers, I can tell them with great confidence that their loved one, that they will see them again. No matter whether the death was expected or not, I found that it's, it's uniquely hard in both circumstances. But I can tell you, if, If you are a child of God, this life is not all there is. Why is that? Because Jesus rose from the dead three days after his crucifixion. He is alive today. And those who put their faith and trust in him, you have victory over sin and death. Because of what Jesus did, we have victory over sin and death. Now, I like my flashlight i reach reached for it. I've, I've got little flashlights. I've cycled through a million of them because eventually they break. But this thing is dependable. I like my flashlight. Gracie likes my flashlight too. Not when I shine it in her face. But you know what? One day this flashlight's going to die. As a matter of fact, yesterday I had to change the bulb in this flashlight. I'd put it up. I had to find it. I hadn't had it in a while. I had to put it up. And I went and I found it. It was in a bin with some other tools. I pulled it out, clicked the button, and nothing. I thought my flashlight that I've depended on for 16 years, I was ready to have a funeral for my flashlight. <laughs> but I thought, hey, maybe it's the bulb. I ordered a bulb on Amazon. It got here yesterday. It was supposed to arrive Friday, but we won't talk about that either. <laughs> got here. I was sweating a little bit. My illustration wasn't going to work if I didn't get my, my bulb. It got here yesterday. I got home last night put my bulb in, and sure enough, it came back to life. But it did burn out. And one day, I'm going to reach for this flashlight, and it's not going to work anymore. Then I may have a funeral for it, because it's been around a long time. My point is that even this has a lifespan. It's dependable now, but one day it won't be. This light will eventually burn out for good. But Jesus... The light of the world will burn for all of eternity. He's alive. And we can depend on him. Our faith is based on the reality of the resurrection. The reality that Jesus is alive. Our entire faith revolves around it. Without it, Jesus was just a man who died. A good man, maybe. A prophet. Maybe, although he had to also be a liar because he said he was God. But without it, he's just a man. His sacrifice for our sins means nothing without the power of the resurrection to overcome death and to provide the same for us, victory over death. This morning, we celebrate the greatest gift that has ever been given, the gift of eternal life Through Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we, no matter what's going on in life, no matter what we're dealing with, as hard as it may be, as challenging as it may be, as uncertain as the future may be, we can move forward individually, as a family, as a church. We can move forward with confidence because we serve a living Savior who's in complete control. And he's got you, he's got us safe in his hands. If he can defeat death, he can defeat anything we face in life. And he can accomplish anything he wants in and through us. If we truly believe the evidence, the witnesses, the testimonies, The living and active Word of God, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you will experience the same thing that Paul did, the same thing that his followers did, the same thing that everybody that testifies in Scripture experienced. You can experience that same freedom that we sang about this morning. You can experience redemption. You can experience salvation, hope, assurance, purpose, and one day experience eternal life in the presence of our living Savior for all of eternity. But you've got to trust Him. You've got to accept. He's not going to force Himself on you. Will you accept if you haven't? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we believe. As we sing, we believe. We believe that You are alive. We believe that You have conquered death, that You have... Paid the price for our sins. We believe that you were buried. That you suffered. You died. You were placed in a tomb. We also believe that Saturday was silent on purpose. To teach us some valuable lessons. About waiting on you. With unanswered questions. About experiencing pain and grief and sorrow. But experiencing it knowing that you were in control and are in control. But Father, most importantly, we believe that Sunday was a reality, that you were raised from the dead and that you are alive today, that you are on your throne, Jesus, that you are alive, that you are in control. Not only are you alive, but you and the person of your spirit are present among us right now. As we pray, you are here with us. You inhabit the praises of your people. You live in us and through us. And when we gather together, you manifest your presence in a special and powerful way. Jesus, we know, Holy Spirit, we know that you are here. We feel your presence. We thank you for being here. Lord, we have heard your word. We've seen the evidence. We've seen the proof. And now you call us to respond. For some of us, that just means we're going to spend the next few moments praising you. And, and even if it's in a small way, maybe just rededicating our commitment to you. For some of us, it may mean that for the first time, we realize that the resurrection was reality, that the crucifixion happened. and that that Maybe there's somebody here that they haven't experienced that freedom from sin that you offer, that gift of salvation, and you're calling them to repentance. You're calling them to turn from their sin and turn to you. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here, somebody watching online that's under conviction right now, and you are calling them to yourself, that they will not resist. Father, that they would, would open themselves up to you. That they would be willing to respond and ask you, invite you into their lives. Lord, there may be other decisions you're calling us to make. I don't know. I, I just know that when your word is preached and you reveal yourself to us, that, that we, we can't remain the same. Either we change because we deny what you call us to do or we accept what you call us to do and, and leave more determined to fulfill your purpose for our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would just change us in this moment. Whatever you want, whatever you ask us to do, Lord, may we open ourselves up to you and respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?